asking the right questions will unlock your best life. They are the keys to enjoying more clarity, passion, balance, and confidence. Hi, I'm Todd Parker. And I'm Bridget Sampson. We're certified executive and life coaches, communication professors, trainers, consultants, and most importantly, parents. We're also dear friends who love diving into those deep conversations about life, relationships, family, and careers. All things about being a curious and compassionate human on this planet. So please join us, and we know you'll find something valuable that resonates with wherever you are on your journey. Welcome back to the Right Questions podcast. This is episode 16. Can't believe we've made it this far, but very exciting to be sharing another episode with all of you. And we're really appreciative of all the feedback we've been getting from our listeners and the value that all the episodes are are having and serving in your lives. So it's why we do what we do. We're just trying to leave everyone better than we found them. And today's question and today's episode is Absolutely no different because we have a brilliant mind, a warm and brilliant mind to share with all of you to have a very important discussion that really permeates every aspect of life and culture and identity and communication. So without further ado, I want to get to the question and get to our speaker, our our guest today and give her a, a solid introduction. Before we do, though, let me reveal the question that we're going to tackle. And that is, how can I be an anti-racist? How can I be an anti-racist? Because that's something I'm certainly striving to do and that we're encouraging all of you listening to do as well. Here's a little quote from a book by our guest. Um, The goal of our guest and the Work she does in speaking and training in the greater society, so for all of us, is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it to Bridget, my lovely co-host, another brilliant mind, to build up and share just all the amazing accomplishments of our guest today. Oh, thank you so much, Todd. And what an outstanding quote that you selected among many that you could have selected from our guest's book. But I, that one really moved me and really does seem to sum up in some small way the amazingness of who she is. So I have the great, great honor of introducing you to one of my greatest mentors, teachers, and friends. <laughs> For I would say a long time now. I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time working together and at dinners and really enjoyed each other's company. And, and I've learned so much from you that I'm just, I'm just kind of overcome with emotion that you're here with us right now. I might get emotional throughout this, this, uh, this introduction and this whole talk because it's something I care, as you know, so, so deeply about. So let me introduce to you our guest today, Lauren N. Nile. Lauren N. Nile is the author of Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line. I have read this cover to cover several times. I have it right here in front of me. You must go out and get it right away. She is also a keynote speaker, trainer, retired attorney, 
a former VoiceAmerica.com radio show host, former host of The Wisdom in the Middle, a Los Angeles-based cable public interest television show. Lauren has 31 years of broad experience in designing, developing, and implementing a wide range of organizational development activities intended to assist organizations in increasing both their empathy and their emotional intelligence, which, as you all know, Todd and I are so passionate about as well, and we've learned so much from Lauren. As a consultant, Lauren has worked with a very wide variety of nonprofit organizations, educational institutions, governmental agencies at the federal, state, and local levels, and Fortune 500 corporations. She's often asked to deliver keynote addresses on a variety of issues, and I can say that I have recommended Lauren to many of our clients on a wide range of topics, and they have always reported back to me that they were beyond thrilled with what she was able to provide for them. Lauren has been quoted in the Washington Post, Business Week, and the Christian Science Monitor. She's been interviewed on the Fox Morning News, Fox Network Morning News. Lauren holds her BA degree in philosophy from the University of New Orleans, or New Orleans, as I'm supposed to say, right, Lauren? (laughs) She holds her MA degree in philosophy from the University of Connecticut, which I just love. And she's had amazing conversations with my daughter, who's a philosophy fanatic, who I said, you've got to talk to Lauren because she's one of the only people I know who knows, who also knows everything about philosophy. And then Lauren went on to earn her doctor of jurisprudence. So really, we should be calling her Dr. Lauren N. Nile from Cornell University School of Law. She's a retired member of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. And the goal of Lauren's writing, speaking, and training is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. And there's more. I could say so much more. Let me give you a couple more things. And then I know we want to hear from Lauren herself, but I've got to give you a couple more things. Lauren lives with her wonderful longtime wife of almost 20 years, Barbara in Palm Springs. And Lauren was honored as a very active member of the Palm Springs community and advocate. She won the two, one of the, she was one of the 2019 Outstanding Voices of Palm Springs. And she was also named the 2019 Advocate of the Year for the Palm Springs Pride Center. And it was called the Palm Springs Spirit of Stonewall Advocate of the Year Award. And Lauren's won so many awards. We could go on and on, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. And she's done so much more than we can possibly say. So please look for Lauren's website. Please follow her. Please look for her book. Everything will be in the show notes for this podcast, but I got to take one more second here to, to speak on a personal note. Lauren is so incredibly generous with her knowledge, her wisdom, her experience that when I was teaching at the university, which I'm retired from now, I invited Lauren for many years to be a guest speaker in my intercultural communication class. The week that we would talk about race as a social construct and the history of racism and the way that the human species needs to evolve beyond seeing our ourselves as separate races and how we are all part of the human family and just 
I couldn't begin to go into the depth of what she would share with my students, but I can tell you that at the end of the semester, when I would ask my students to reflect on the most impactful experiences of the course, Lauren's visit for that one class was always at the top of the list. So I thank you again for that, Lauren. You came and, and gave that to us for all of those years out of the generosity of your heart and your spirit. And you would stay after class and go out to dinner with me so that we could debrief and talk more and connect personally. And, you know, I never really thought that was going to come to an end. So now looking back at how I've retired and things are different now, those memories are incredibly special and meaningful to me, Lauren, in addition to you coming to speak for the Educational Opportunity Program, which I have worked for for over 20 years in designing and developing training programs for mentors who work with historically low-income first-generation college students, and you would come to our trainings and lead the privileged walk of life and teach us about processing the for so many students, the trauma of the inequities that they've experienced in their lives. And those conversations were filled with learning and growth and tears and and just so much depth and meaning. And I'll stop there because we have to have a conversation and we want to hear from you. But I really wanted to take the time to to give people just at least a glimpse into how incredible you are, how lucky we are to have you here and how grateful we are to have this conversation. Thank you so much for being with us, Lauren. Did I leave Lauren, anything no. out? Well, well, let's just welcome her. Like, welcome, what an interest. Lauren, welcome. what kind of, what do you think of that buildup, Lauren? <laughs> I, oh my gosh, now the pressure's on. <laughs> oh my gosh. Bridget and Todd, thank you both so much. That's, that's an amazing introduction. And I almost feel as if I'm listening to the introduction of someone else. <laughs> but, but I do thank you for that. And all of those years of working with you at CSUN in your class in the EOP program. It was as much of a delight and a privilege for me as well. So thank you for asking me all those times, Bridget. I really enjoyed it. Not to mention our dinners afterwards and the conversations we had. It was just wonderful. So I look forward, hopefully in the future, to getting together with you again at some points that we can really catch up and continue our conversation. Yes. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction. Yes, absolutely. As you can see, we have no shortage of respect and admiration for Lauren and for her mind and for the wisdom that she brings to everything, but specifically to the discussion and the perspective and wisdom she's bringing to the discussion today. It's really why we're having her on, to build all of us up, to leave all of us, including myself and Bridget, much better than we were when we started this discussion. Um, so let's dig into it, Bridget. I know that you wanted to ask Lauren, uh, so I'm going to I'm gonna throw it back to you, Bridget. What, what's your question for Lauren to start us off? Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Todd. Well, I could just ask Lauren a million questions for endless hours, but I want to say that we are going to get to shortly our question, how can I be an anti-racist, right? And just to set that up, hopefully you've all read Ibram Kendi's book about being an anti-racist. And what he says is that it's not enough to not be a racist, right? Uh, that, that being passive is basically being complicit in the racist world that we live in, right? So his book was, was quite impactful for me to understand that I need to 
actively work to be anti-racist and that is a lifelong journey. And Lauren, probably more than anyone else in my life has taught me about how to do that. So we are going to get to the actions. And I also want to say before we forget, please check the show notes because Lauren has been kind enough to deliver a workshop for Samson Coaching and Consulting on race and racism. She's been kind enough to write a blog post for us. Now she's on our podcast. So there's a lot more that you can learn about how to be an anti-racist and much more from Lauren that we want you to, to follow up with after. But before we get to all of that, what we can do, we, we want you to experience the amazingness of, of what Lauren has, has learned in her journey and, and how she's come to be this incredibly wise scholar for all of us. So Lauren, would you tell us a little bit, let me just start from the very beginning. You have some, some things that have changed me truly to hear about your childhood and growing up and growing up in the segregated South. It, can we just start there and hear a little bit about anything you would like to share with us about those experiences in that time in your life? Sure, absolutely. I'd be happy to start there. It is, after all, my start. So I was born nine years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. I was born uh, the third child, my parents' third child, I have two older brothers, and I was born in 1953 in New Orleans. That's where my family is from, and on both sides, my mom and my dad's sides, as far as we can go back, that's where we've always been from. So, yeah, I grew up in the deep south. You can't get much, you can't get much farther south in New Orleans unless you want to go swimming <laughs> in the Gulf. So, um, so, yeah, that's certainly where I was born and raised. And as I say, it was nine years before President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64. So throughout my childhood years, until I was almost 11, I grew up in a society that was basically the American equivalent of South African apartheid. There were white-only signs everywhere, and every single thing in the public sphere was segregated by race. So most people know that restrooms and water fountains were segregated. That's what comes to mind for many people when they think about segregation, separate water fountains, separate restrooms. And that was absolutely true. In fact, sometimes there were free restrooms, men, women, and colored. But in addition to restrooms and, and water fountains, Every other single thing was separated. So the buses, and many people know about the buses as well. There was, I don't know why, but we call them the screens. I don't know why that term was used, but it was a little tin sign about like that, that size and shape that said, these seats are reserved for our colored patrons only. And you had to sit behind the screen. I don't care how many seats there were that were open in the front. You had to sit behind the screen. Now, you could move, it was usually one a seat behind the back door of the bus. You could move it to the door that was just adjacent to the back door, but no more than that. So many of us were standing in the back when sometimes the front of the bus was almost empty. But yeah, so it was buses and, and it was movie theaters and it was amusement parks. So there, there were two things. One, everything was segregated. Everything that was, you know, that was sort of in the public square that could be segregated was segregated. But then there were other things that just weren't shared at all. That was the white-only space. And that was some movie theaters and all movie theaters, all restaurants, all schools. They were just white-only and colored-only, white and colored. And really, in New Orleans at that time, that's really what we had, I'd say, overwhelmingly. Maybe 95% of the people in the city were either white or black. There weren't really any significant numbers of other people. Um, so that was a world in which I grew up. 
Luckily for me, I had a mother and a grandmother who adored me. I grew up in a two-parent family. I lived in a wonderful African-American neighborhood in which I had wonderful, wonderful examples in all of the adults in my neighborhood who were all, as we now say, as my brother and I call them, civic-minded, and who all taught us what it means to be really strong adults, compassionate people, um, moral people, people who no matter what was thrown at them, always, always, always responded with dignity and integrity. So I was fortunate that all that ugly stuff that was going on in the outside world really sort of stayed out there and didn't get too much inside me because of what was going on in my private world, if you will. But yeah, no, those are the times in which I grew up. I remember when President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64 and how exciting that was for all of us and how my parents, the the phone was ringing at the house that night. And I I remember asking my mother, why why is everybody so excited? What what does it say? What, What does this law do? And my mother said, well, you know that roller coaster you want to ride at Pontchartrain Beach? Yeah. Uh huh. This law says we can go ride that roller coaster now. What? You know the 34 flavors of ice cream that you've always wanted to try at Howard Johnson's? Yeah. This law says we can go to Howard Johnson's and eat the ice cream now. What? I mean, I remember, I remember it as if it were yesterday. So I saw a society literally change at least in that way literally overnight, because the law took, took effect immediately. And as a child, all of that had an, had an impact on me. And I thought, I've got to do something when I grow up to teach people that judging each other based on our race and our color and our class and, and all of those things, that whether or not we have a disability, even though I didn't have that language as a child, it's just wrong. And it's who we are on the inside. It's our hearts. It's our minds that make us who we are, you know? I mean, I remember thinking as a child, I didn't ask to be born brown, and, and I say brown because that's how kids think, you know? And, and white people didn't ask to be born white, and so I, I, why do, you know, in my, I learned how we're viewed, how we're thought about. I thought, but it's not true. I'm not like that. Mom and dad, you're not, none of my friends are like, their parents aren't like that. Why do they think those things? I gotta do something to, to help, to help, even though, again, I didn't have this language, to help raise, you know, raise consciousness, really, when I grow up, to teach people. This is, you know, we're much more alike as human beings than we are different, and we've got to start learning that. So that's a little bit about who I am, where I came from, and one other quick thing, because I was also a science nut as a kid, I loved science, I was a geeky science kid, when DNA science uh, came about, about 20 years ago, I started researching that um, and really put together what I hope is a wonderful workshop called The Oneness of Humanity, in which I go pretty deeply into the DNA science of how, you know, humanity really is one race. And I just love that work as well. Well, Lauren, tell us more about that. I don't, I don't want to say much. I don't, I think you have... Um, so much to share on that, but if you could give us like the brief kind of understanding, I know in your book, you talk a lot about the science, but I remember when you would come to my classes and share, you know, where did people really come from and how are we really all related? Can you say a little bit more about that? I think it's so profound. Oh, sure. Absolutely. 
and this isn't me talking, this is science talking. So for those who disagree, I would say that's fine, but you're disagreeing with science. You're not disagreeing with me. What we know, and, and what we've known for a long time, really, is that the human species was born in Africa. The African continent is our home, all seven plus billion of us on this earth. What happened is that eventually fully formed African people, modern day humans, began spreading out out of Africa uh, and leaving on what were then land bridges that no longer exist. And over several thousand years, literally went to the other five of the other six continents on the earth. Obviously, they didn't go to Antarctica. But fully formed modern day African human beings, men and women, left Africa and went to Asia and Europe and Australia, you name it, the Middle East. And then what happened is gradually, over about 20,000 years, so evolutionarily speaking, we're talking about a drop in a hat, you know, those African human beings began to physically adapt to their environments. You know, adapt or die, it's one of the rules of nature. Um, we have to adapt to our environments or we, or we just don't survive in them. So, uh, for example, the people who went up to Europe had to lose a lot of the melanin in their skin in order for their bodies to be able to absorb more vitamin D from the sun. And vitamin D is very important to human beings, and it's especially important to embryonic development. And so if you're in a place where the sun doesn't shine as brightly for as long as it does on the continent of Africa, then it's more advantageous, physically more advantageous for you to not have as much melanin, for your skin to be lighter, to allow your body to absorb more vitamin D from the sun. And so those are the kinds of changes that took place over 20,000 years. The protection from the sun to the nape of the neck wasn't needed anymore, the, the protection from the sun in terms of the human skull. So the hair of those African people started to you know, lose some of that, that tight texture that it had because it just wasn't necessary. So there's a whole lot more I could say about that, of course. But to, suffice it to say that that's the origin of human species, of our, of our human races, rather. We're one species, but we have all of these different physical appearances because we adapted to physical environments around the planet. We know that we're one species because we can all procreate together. You know, if you put a horse and a donkey together, they're close enough to procreate. They're close enough. But what do they do? They come together and they create a mule, an animal that has no gonads. It has no, no sex organs, so it can't uh, reproduce itself. So it's a biologically non-viable animal. Why? Because its parents are not an exact genetic match. But you could but put a, I don't know, a three and a half foot pygmy woman together with a six feet, six inch Swede man, and they'd come together and make a perfectly human human being, as different as they look, because genetically, they are the exact same members. They're members of, of one species. They're identical genetically. So that's how, among other reasons, that's how we know or why we know that we really are one species. Anybody can procreate with anyone else. And that's the hallmark of a species. So it's time for our family and that's what I call us, our human family, to evolve beyond isms, beyond racism, and all of the other isms, to realize that we really, truly are one human family. 
Absolutely. So beautifully put. And if people just understood that, I think it could make such a difference. I hope a lot of people listen to this. And isn't it true, Lauren? I'll probably get it wrong, but I, I know I learned from you that that we can all be traced back to one woman almost. Is that right? Or <laughs> You know what? Um, that's what the science was at the time. What scientists have realized now is that it's actually one group of people, the San Bushmen, the one woman that they thought were all traceable back to, they realized that the genetics that they were using at that time weren't quite correct. But they know that we come from one small group of people, the San Bushmen uh, of Africa. Yeah. But that's amazing. I mean, that proves that we are all family. We truly are. It's true. It's true. And if we really believe that and live that way, the world would be a different place. It would be. Now, there are people, a lot of people are doing their DNA these days with Ancestry.com and 23andMe.com. And for example, I just had dinner with a friend who said, you know, I, all my chart indicates, all my, my genealogy indicates is that I'm from Northern Europe. I have nothing from, from anywhere but Northern Europe. Now, the Middle East, nowhere, not even Southern Europe. And that's, I'm guessing that that's because her family has been in Northern Europe for so long that that's what's coming up. But certainly a deeper, deeper dive would certainly show that she has, you know, her, her origins are with the rest of humanity, you know. You being a, a kid who, you know, self-proclaimed science nerd, took it upon yourself to go seek out and arm yourself with a lot of information that what I can see is you synthesized and took these pieces of your own interest and your own experience, right, of all that that was. And knowing the work you do today and the spirit of of our question, right, how to be an anti-racist, how can I be an anti-racist? Like, what do you find that this information, like I said, you synthesized it into knowledge and you offered, you disseminated it to others, all, you know, privately, publicly, organizations and the people in their, you know, in, in, in um, education. What do you find the, that this knowledge does for people in confronting this idea of racism or of being an anti-racist? Thank you, Todd. It's a great question. I tell you, people have said to me so often on so many occasions, I can't even count them anymore, after they've heard me do a presentation on the oneness of humanity or on some aspect of racism having to do with the daily indignities, we'll maybe get into that a little later, or unearned privilege, people have said to me, Lauren, why isn't this stuff taught in high school? Why don't we have college courses about this stuff? I mean, I never knew this. If I'd only understood a little bit more about what affirmative action was supposed to do, for example, and what the legislative intent was, I would have had different feelings about it. I just didn't understand. I didn't have the knowledge. You know, another person, he was one of the librarians at Cal State Northridge. I was walking into my um, office building one day and he was behind me in the parking lot and he yelled, Lauren, Lauren. I said, yes, Dean. He said, I'm reading your book and I got to tell you, as a white person, I never even thought about this kind of stuff before. So to answer your question directly, Todd, people have said to me, and I, you know, I'm not being hyperbolic, people have honestly shared with me in these words, Lauren, this book has changed my life. You know, I, I see things that I never saw before. I know things I never knew before. I, when I think about race and even encounter people who are different from me by race, I just come at it with a different and come to it with a, just a different, in a totally different context. So the knowledge seems to be impacting people on a deep level. And I just 
wish that it were out there more and that it were spread more widely because for those who have the ears to hear it, it does seem to impact them in a positive way, very deeply. Well, you just mentioned something when you said that those who have the ears to hear it, right? I don't want to speculate. So I just want to ask the question when you share it, because I'm speculating already. It sounds like more often than not, the impact is positive. It may be confronting, right? That the information may challenge ideas that we've held or, or even never, ever examined, but that the, the net effect of it for most of the people that that they do, I guess what I'm saying is that most people do have the ears to hear it. And when they're actually offered, they listen, they take it in and are, and are transformed as a result of it. That's been my experience. That's what people have shared with me. Now, what I don't know is how many people or how many people it doesn't resonate because they aren't the ones that will come up to me and say, thank you so much for that presentation. Thank you for that workshop. You know, and so I don't know how many of those people there are. And, you know, being honest, I know that there are people who may not be able to hear it and may not be able to take it in because it's just too much for them. Now, that doesn't, given all that they've been socialized with, what that doesn't mean is that there might not come a future time at which they may be able to go back and and reread it and reconsider after having had other experiences. So I never write a person off and say, okay, they weren't able to hear it. Well, that's too bad. Because I know that they may have other experiences in the future that may, in the same way, give them a little bit of cognitive dissonance, a little bit more cognitive dissonance. And then after a while, they may even be able to take in the stuff that I bring out. Because the stuff that I present is, you know, for some people, pretty sort of shocking. What? We all came from Africa, Mm -hmm, you know? mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do hope that it's the majority, though, Todd. I I do hope that it's the majority that do have the ears to hear it right away, because that's even better, of course. I guess my last part on thought about that is this part of what I find very special about you and your approach to this discussion, which is just a sensitive discussion, is how open and warm you are to have and hold a space for the discussion. And so listening to you talk, I was moving, I was moved just hearing you talk about your childhood and the civic-minded small community you came from and how special and unique perhaps that was. But I'm looking at all of these, of your experience across your life and wondering how do you show up to have what can be a contentious and a discussion, sensitive discussion, how do you show up in the way that you do, warm and compassionate rather than any of alternative, angry, resentful? Uh, you know, there's, there could be a million other terms we could come up with. Which would be justified, by the way. Absolutely. Completely, Abs- 100%. Absolutely. Well, do know that I do get angry sometimes. You know, when I see the injustice that so many people who look like me experience in the world just because of how they look. Yeah, there are times, there are many times when I do get angry. That is true. I mean, you know, I'm a human being and that is there and I I can't deny it. When I see the injustice of, of those who inflict the pain get away with it and not be accountable for it, I get really angry when I see that. So yeah, that is there as well. When I experience things myself, daily indignities, for example, just I'm going to say maybe three weeks ago, once again, I was profiled in a department store, which happens so often. I was checking out at one of the self-check centers, one of the self-check stations, and uh, the white employee, there were maybe 
eight stations. It was in a square. The, the white employee there stood there the whole time. And I saw him watching me check out my items and stayed there until I checked out my last item. And I left after I paid and got my receipt. He then left, leaving all, I don't know, five or six of the white customers behind me in the process of checking their things out. He didn't have to watch them. So when those things continue to happen, every now and then it's anger, but more often than not, it's frustration. It's, it's like, I can't believe this is happening again. You know, it's just frustration. And sometimes I speak up, often I do, but sometimes I just don't have the energy. I don't want to do it again. You know, I just want to go on with my day. But then I feel guilty about not saying something in, in that moment, knowing that so often I do say something, but on those times when I don't, I feel guilty about not doing it. Sometimes I don't have the time because I'm really literally on my way to something else. But at any rate, yeah, I do have those feelings too in answer to that question. You must do something. You must have some way to manage yourself (laughs) to show up in the ways that you do. Couple of things. You are absolutely right, Todd. Couple of things. Number one, what helps a lot um, is the fact that I got so much love when I was a kid, you know, that just, even though it was a long time ago, it was my introduction to life, you know, and being loved as much as I was as a child by my parents, by my grandparents, you know, just being shown all of the respect that the adults in our lives just showed us as, as kids and knowing what they expected of us and how we were to behave. So it was that. Number two, it was the fact that we got the lesson that, listen, and I know this may not ring true for all people of color, and I I understand it, but the lesson I was taught as a child is no matter what happens, you do not hate. That's not how we respond. In fact, we have to be an example. It's our responsibility to be an example, to show white people what it means to be, you know, a good citizen, to be someone who judges people based on the content of their character. You know, we have to be better. We have to rise above. So I got that lesson consistently as a child. So that's still in me and that helps. Number three, I have a meditation practice that really helps a lot. My spiritual tradition and my meditation practice really helped me today to stay centered, to stay focused, to stay, to stay grounded and also, I've made friends over the years. I've made friends with so many people of all different races. And, you know, my friends, yes, I trust not, I don't have a whole lot of European American friends. I mean, good, good friends. I have a lot of European American friends, but not a whole lot of good, really good European American friends. But the ones that I have that I'm very close to, I trust implicitly. And they've shown me that I can trust them, that they're worthy of my trust. And so seeing that, and also remembering that my grandmother's good, good, good friend, Miss Mamie, when I was a child, her best friend, in fact, was a white woman. I, to this day, I don't know how Miss Mamie and my grandmother met. But anyway, it shows me that there's the potential for human beings to, to rise above all of that and to build bridges and to truly have relationship with each other in which there is respect and admiration and understanding and indeed love. The reason I asked you those questions is because I know that from having spoken to you and just from people I consider my family, right, when they say, I have to work 
each day. Like I have a process that I go through to say show up in these ways to and to have a discussion or to whether we use the word endure or to to live through, like you just pointed out, the daily indignities that would still be happening today. And so with that, all of those parts of your life, which is not a typical upbringing, right? You had an atypical upbringing. You're sitting here at the age that you are with all of that experience, still experiencing that and doing your work to show up and be a model and be able to have these discussions when the spirit, and this is why I asked the question, the spirit of today is what do I do? Like, what do we do? You're doing Everything you need to be, am I, is Bridget and are the rest of us, all the people listening, engaged in that same effort? I don't know that we are. And that's part of the encouragement today is to get us to take those to the, those steps. So I just wanted to sort of explain why I asked those questions. Go ahead, Bridget. Yeah. And yeah, and I know we're going to move into, you know, how to be an anti-racist because Lauren has so much to teach us about it. And it, as Todd said, it's something that we are working on daily. I'm working on daily. But I do want to say in reference to this conversation that I think it's also important to listen to people when they're angry. I also love all of the things that you, you know, I talked about, about Lauren and her, her approach. And you, you two are both greens in true colors. You know, we haven't talked too much about true colors, but you know, we have all kinds of ways of understanding all of our differences, right? So we know in true colors, like greens tend to be very analytical and they think through everything and very kind of cool, calm and centered, but everybody's different, you know, and I'm a blue in true colors and that's passion and fiery and I get angry and I want to listen to the people that are out there angry. I want to listen to the people that are on the front lines in the protests and who, you know, may not have written an amazing book and, you know, you know, like I, I want to listen to them as well, you know, as, as Lauren and her amazing work. Um, And I just feel it's important to say that. I think everybody's voice needs to be heard and not everyone can package it or or needs to or should have to package it in a a palatable way for white people, especially. Um, So I just want to put that perspective in there. I think it's really important. And I'm not saying that that's what you were saying, Todd. I'm just balancing out, you know, all the all the amazing praise we're giving Lauren that's due for her, you know, the impact that she has on the way she shows up in the world and you know, and she's not going to be out there screaming and yelling and, you know, and, <laughs> and, and using profanity. But you know what? The people who are have something really important that we need to hear as well. That's all I'll say. <laughs> and I know you both agree. <laughs> I do agree. I do agree totally. Thank you for that, Bridget, because as you say, we can learn, learn a lot from people's anger. We can learn, number one, why they're angry. And number two, we can learn about the depth of the hurt from that anger. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to say that. And I also wanted to say that, yeah, no, but I have been out there as a teenager. And also in my 20s and 30s, I was in lots of protests. I was there. I I still, they're in slides now. We don't even have slides. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But, uh, you know, pictures of all the, all the demonstrations I was in, all the marches I was in, you know, so yeah, I have been out there. And then finally, I just wanted to say very quickly, I think that my upbringing might have been somewhat atypical, perhaps in terms of the community I lived in, in terms of how it was built and all of that. And what I really believe was the first black subdivision in the country 
It's in the Louisiana historical something or other records. Uh, it's, it's called Pontchartrain Park. And yeah, that was atypical. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to deny that. That was the first one. Nowadays, there are many such black subdivisions in the country. At that time, that was the first one. But in terms of the lessons that I got, I've, as an adult, talking to other African-Americans who did not grow up, you know, uh, middle class, for example, yeah, it's interesting that, yep, my mother told me the same thing. Yep, my father told me this. So we got lots of the same messages in terms of, no, you have to be better showing what kind of behavior we expect to get by engaging that behavior toward others. A lot of people, no matter what, a lot of African-American people that I've talked to, no matter what socioeconomic strata they may have grown up in, a lot of us got that message, which is interesting to me. So that part of it, I don't think was that atypical, actually. Yeah, and I think Todd was not speaking to your upbringing being atypical with regard to race, but in general, like for all of us in terms of two-parent household, where the parents who were your birth parents, or you're living with both of them throughout, right? Like like so many part aspects of that for all people, the love and the security and the safety and the positivity and the emotional intelligence and all of that, like Unfortunately, not a lot of kids are growing up with all of that that you talked about today. And that's okay. Like we are figuring out ways to support and raise healthy kids, you know, but your story is, is unique and inspiring in, in countless ways. In the interest of full disclosure, I also want to make sure that people know that, you know, my childhood wasn't all rainbows yes. and Rainbows daisies, and rainbows and daisies, daisies, I think they daisies. say. Butterflies, bunnies. Butterflies, okay. Uh, you know, I, it, I was part of this planet on this, you know, in this society because my father, for example, my father who, you know, as an adult, I've come to, he's gone now, but as an adult in my own mind, I've really come to a place of peace around him and really understands that he really did love us and showed it in the ways that he was able to. I lived with him till I finished college when I was 21. Yeah, but he was a weekend alcoholic when I was growing up. So he came home Fridays and Saturdays, sloshed, you know. Now, luckily, he wasn't an abusive drunk. Luckily, he wasn't an, an, an abusive alcoholic. In fact, his personality came out when he was, hey, play that piano for me. I like that, you know. He was that kind of alcoholic, thank goodness. But nonetheless, he was an alcoholic, and it was hurtful to my mother, whom I adored. So I just want to make sure yeah. that people know that I'm well, not painting my childhood as all rainbows. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you lost your mom at a very young age and your sister, your younger sister being at a very, very young age who you then became a, a surrogate mother for, really. I did. So I did. I became a teenage mom to my seven-year-old sister. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. First thing I hear, I'm just going to to answer the question of how can I be an anti-racist in all of that discussion? One of the things I hear, and maybe, you know, each of you have something else, but what I hear is seeking out information and, and synthesizing it into knowledge, like that there is fat, there are facts to go discover. And when we discover those facts, whether it be about race or evolution or even things about ourselves, when we discover those things, we tend to, as human beings, calm down a little bit in the situation. <laughs> What's so, that, Todd? First thing I, I hear. <laughs> I hadn't heard it characterized that way, but I love that. That's the first time I've heard people say, oh, the response is we like emotionally calm down a bit. And I think that's so true. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's I interrupted. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I maybe it's just me because I'm a green, as Bridget said. Yeah, I calm I'm down wondering. When Sometimes I, know I get riled <laughs> when I learn things. When I read about, you know, the ways, the things, some of the things that Lauren's experienced in this book, I don't know that it calms me initially. <laughs> so I do think there are different responses. I think I get riled and angry and upset, but then that makes me want to go out and teach and advocate and, you know, and do what I can. So, and I guess it depends on what you learn. Some things can be calming, like, Oh, I didn't know. And other things can be, what? Say what? It just depends on what you learn. <laughs> so Lauren, the, you have so much to teach on how to be an anti-racist. Where do we start? So I do have a list of eight things. You know, being the green temperament that I am, you knew I had a list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I'll just start in. But before doing that, let me say that this is such an important question, how to be an anti-racist. And I'm focusing my comments particularly on European-Americans. This is a list for everyone, really, but specifically or particularly for European-Americans. I'm hoping it will be helpful to them. But it's an important question because, frankly, I think people of color, many, many people of color are just retired of carrying this burden, you know? I mean, as someone said recently on one of the news shows I was watching, people of color don't want to be out there in the streets, young people of color in their teens and 20s. and They don't want to be out there in the streets protesting, but they have to be. They'd rather be pursuing what young people pursue, you know, their art, their, their degrees, their love lives with their girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever, you know, they want to be going out with their friends. They want to be doing what young people do. The reason they're out there protesting is because they know they have to, but it's tiring. And so, yeah, it's an important question, number one, because, you know, people, many people of color are just, you know, exhausted and we need allies, we need help, we need friends. And number two, it's an important question because if we can learn how to be an effective, good anti-racist, it's good for white people because I think a lot of white people are also tired of thinking that they're doing something wrong, you know, tired of feeling guilty, you know, tired of feeling as if, oh, this will, we'll, we'll never get through this, tired of thinking there's nothing I can do, you know? So it's a great question that deserves an honest answer. So I have a list of seven things. All right, number one. Realize that it's going to be uncomfortable. This is the emotional work first. Do the emotional work first. Realize it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. It's going to be messy. And that being an anti-racist requires discomfort. There's no way to stay within one's comfort level and do anti-racist work because there's, there's an emotional feeling to it for all of us, you know? Know that there's going to be bumps along the road and just expect that. So when you say, I'm going to be an anti-racist, I'm going to start... Just know, okay, and this might be kind of hard. Harder at first than later on. It does get easier. Number two, realize that being an anti-racist is a long-term lifetime commitment. You know, it's nothing that ever ends because I don't think racism is going to end in our lifetimes. Not in our lifetimes. And so know that when I take this on, yeah, even though I may, there may be times when I say I can't do this today, I just don't have it emotionally, that regardless of me taking breaks every now and then, this is something I'm going to be committed to forever. So it's a long-term lifetime commitment. And Bridget and Todd, if you ever want to interrupt me when I'm going through this list of seven, feel free, please. We don't. (laughs) I mean, thank you for the permission, but we are just captivated all ears. So forgive us. We don't. That was gold, Bridget. We don't. (laughs) Please continue. We are your students. (laughs) Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I'll take all the questions and comments afterwards that you'd like. Number three, understand that you're 
going to make mistakes along the road, apologize when you do, and then get right back up. You're going to make mistakes. We all do. I have made mistakes with regard to populations that I'm not a member of, totally innocently, and I felt horrible at the time. I apologized, got back up, and, you know, continued to, to try again for the next day. And know that that's just, you know, the way it is. We, we are not perfect, certainly in this regard. I'll tell you, though, I'll give you a hint. One big mistake to avoid is trying to connect with people of color as members of their group, their whatever person of color group they're a member of. Do not do that. <laughs> you know, that's a huge one to avoid. And it's so, well, I shouldn't say. It seems to me that it would be so easy to do, but I, I can't sit in anyone else's shoes, but, or walk in anyone else's shoes. But what I mean by that is don't mention you know, there was a black kid in my high school or, you know, my best friend in France is black. That just happened to Barbara about, I don't know, two weeks ago. Or, you know, my brother and his wife adopted a black kid. Don't do that. Just relate to us as human beings because it is so kind of annoying, frankly. And it's just so objectifying. And I think it's because it's so objectifying that it is so annoying on an emotional level. You know, just, just treat us as a human being. Maya Angelou said it best. The first thing I want you to do when you meet me is <laughs> forget that I'm black. Just treat me as a human being. The second thing I want you to do when you meet me is never forget that I'm black. And I think what she means by that is just relate to me as a human being first, but then remember that I have life experiences that may give me some sensitivities and things that you know I would ask you to be respectful of. So just because we may become friends, don't become so comfortable that you start saying things that you might say to yourself, oh, I can say it to Lauren because she'll know I'm not like that. She'll know I don't really mean that. I'm not, I can say that to her because she knows I'm not coming from that place. No, don't say it, whatever it is. So, you know, yeah, you know, just see me as a human being, but then also be aware of my life experiences and how they may impact how certain things may land with me. That's number three. Number four, educate yourself. Oh my gosh, that's so important. Educate yourself on issues of race and racism. And as part of that education, listen to people of color. So often I think it's the case for not all, and I, I hope not the majority, but for many white Americans, they can hear it best when it comes from another white person. Whatever the it is, whatever the lesson is, has more credibility if it's coming from someone who looks like them. Listen to the experiences of people of color told by people of color. That's part of that education. Read books by authors of color. Go to YouTube. You can even in YouTube search for how to be a white ally, how to be an anti-racist. All kinds of great YouTube videos will come up. Read blogs, tweet. Those are the kinds of things you can do. Read tweets. You know, and what are three things to really that are important to really learn about? As I say, uh, listen to people of color as, as a way of learning. But three things that are important to learn about. One, unearned privilege. Unearned privilege doesn't mean that you had a, that you had a great life, uh, you know, that you were born rich, that you had no problems, that you didn't have to work for what you have. Unearned privilege doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean that you were raised upper middle class. And no, it doesn't mean any of that. I know, I know that there are a lot of white people who were born and raised in Appalachia who had to scrape their way out of Appalachia to get to Yale Law School or what have you. You know, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means that there are lots of things that you can take for granted that you don't have to think about 
Because no matter, no matter about the fact that you grew up poor or, or you grew up, you know, in a one parent family, you don't have to think about your life or your safety, for example, being at risk because of your race. Barbara and I later this year are going to do a, a tour to see our family members. I'm going to see my 80-year-old aunt in Baton Rouge and my 90-year-old aunt in Jackson, Mississippi. And Barbara's, we're going to go drive to see her sister in, in Athens, Georgia. We're going to drive to see relatives in Florida. Don't you think as two black women are riding on those highways in the South, don't you think I'm going to be thinking about the potential danger? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As a white person, you don't have to think about that. You know, I wanted to buy a small camper, the smallest I could find and and go to the national parks, you know, and really see I live in the West and really see all the parks in Utah and Wyoming because of what's been happening lately in terms of white supremacists being emboldened by our former president. That doesn't feel safe to me anymore, you know. Uh, and, and, and that's been a life's dream that I had so long. When I retire, I'm going to, and for some reason, I don't feel like I want to be doing that right now. Those are the kinds of things you don't have to think about if you're white. You have a kind of freedom that I just don't feel people of color have. So, that, so learn about unearned privilege. And there are other aspects of earned privilege, too. So that's one. Second thing to learn about are the daily indignities. The things that people of color experience every single day, no matter if you are an African-American person with two college educated parents who, who grew up, you know, upper middle class. That's not my background, but, you know, no matter if that's your background or no matter what other privilege you may have as a person of color, you still have those daily indignities. I don't care if you're a judge sitting on the D.C. Circuit Court. If you're black, you still have those. Look at what Michelle Obama just said last week in her interview. I'm afraid when my two daughters are in that car by themselves. If somebody sees them from the back and they don't know my girls, they don't know that they're great students and they're polite kids, I'm afraid of the assumptions they might make and how they might get hurt. The former first lady of the United States. So learn about those kinds of daily indignities that people of color, just we just live with all the time. And then thirdly, Learn about your own unconscious bias. You know, all of us have unconscious bias. And I could go into that for hours. I won't, obviously, but learn about what bias I might have. Take the Harvard IAT test and and really learn, wow, I didn't know I was carrying that. Don't feel guilt, blame, or shame. Just work on it. That's what we need. We need you to work on it. Number five in my list of seven, speak up. Speak up when you have a family member or friends saying things that are racist or homophobic or transphobic or something that is insensitive to people with disabilities, what have you, sexist, misogynist, speak up, you know, but so often we don't do that because we're afraid to do that, especially with family, but that's what we're called to do. Speak up with family and with friends. Number six, be an activist. Become an activist if you're not one. Become more of an activist if you are one. What I mean by that? What do I mean by that? There are lots of ways to do that. Number one, testify before legislative bodies. If you have that kind of access and you can testify before your local city council or your state legislature, as a friend of mine does quite often. Number six, B, call for a boycott. You know businesses are discriminating you know, against people based on their race, their gender, their gender identity, their disability, their age. Call for a boycott, you know? I mean, everybody can do that now. We're in the age of uh, social media and say, you know what? I'm not giving my money to this store anymore until they change their policy around X, Y, or Z. 
Okay, C, 6C, help organizations, nonprofit organizations. They always need help making phone calls, stuffing envelopes, writing postcards, you know, help them do that. Uh, organizations that are working for, you know, people's freedom and dignity. Sign petitions, you know, just to get stuff, you know, on the ballot. When you see people outside of grocery stores saying, hi, just trying to get petition. Now, be sure you read it because folks who are on the other side of the political spectrum can lie and say, oh, this this is just to get it on the petition. And, and it's something that you do not want to be signing. But, you know, if it's a petition that you if it's something that you've read and you think, yeah, I want people to be able to vote on this because I'd love for this to pass. Sign, sign it. Retweet things that you found helpful and encouraging and inspiring and educational. Retweet them. Do Facebook shares. Wow, that was really good. I learned a lot. Share it with your whole serve. Attend demonstrations. And, you know, being on the front lines isn't for everybody. I, I understand that. But you can go and you can pass out water and snacks. You know, there are ways in which we can, we can be involved in demonstrations that don't require us to be on the front line. Being on the front lines is great. And I'm so encouraged that there were so many young white people who were right there on the front lines last summer in all of the Black Lives Matter um, demonstrations. You know, if because of your age or, or perhaps a disability, it, it would be more challenging or more difficult for you. Do what you can. Pass out water, you know, or snacks or something to those who are demonstrating. And then and donate. Donate money to organizations that are working on these issues, for sure. And then finally, number seven, think about what you can do with your personal skills, talents, and interests. You know, there's a TED Talk called, What If White People Led the Charge to End Racism? What If White People Led the Charge to End Racism? It's by Nita, N-I-T-A, Mosby-Tyler, Nita Mosby-Tyler. And she told her, uh, I'll just tell it really quickly. I'll take 15 seconds. She told about growing up in the segregated South during the 60s and how she so badly wanted to do ballet as a little girl. None of the local ballet uh, schools accepted it. They all said, we don't accept Negroes, which was the term of the day when her mother took her. And so her ballet teacher, though, one of the ballet teachers came to her school, which, of course, was segregated, an all-Black school, and started offering ballet classes for the little girl, maybe little girls and boys, I'm not sure, but for the little kids who are interested in doing ballet. Now, this was a white woman who said, I'm going to do something about this because none of these local ballet schools do accept little black girls. So I'm going to do something. And she went to the black school and talked to the principal and two days a week or whatever it was, offered ballet lessons to the kids in that school that wanted to to learn ballet. So think, oh, if you're an artist, oh, I want to do a mural on whatever, you know, whatever your skills, your talents, your abilities are, think about how you might donate them to the cause of freedom, justice, and liberation for all of us. That's my list of seven. As I say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Wow, Lauren, it's quite a story. It really encapsulates so much. I mean, we could go on for so much longer digging into more, but you've given us really concrete steps and really specific, helpful examples that we can follow and that we can do. And I'm, as I always am in all the years we've known each other, I'm again, you know, inspired and motivated and activated, you know, to do more, to continue to do more. Thank you, Bridget. That's a partial list. The list could be much. I know. Those are at the top of my list. Yes, I know the list is much longer and it's here. 
everybody. If you're, you got to watch this on YouTube, everybody, so you can see Lauren. And you're never going to believe when you see Lauren that she was born in the year that she said she was born, <laughs> by the way. But it, you'll see for yourself if you watch this on YouTube. And I'm holding up her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line. Let me hold it sideways so you can see how thick it is. <laughs> a lot in here to learn from and a lot more than what Lauren just shared so briefly. Yeah, Todd. And I'll just, as a, a funny but also true thing, it's very well organized as a, yeah, as a piece of material. Is. So it just really as you is. heard Lauren enumerate and her sub points of each of, you know, she teaches speaking, she teaches, so she herself is embodying all of that, not just the message she's giving in, in the spirit and demeanor of how to have this conversation, but also how to clearly walk someone through information that, can be thick and, and, and challenging to confront and work through. So it's both inspiring. It's a very well written, very well organized, but it's very well written in terms of the voice that you hear. Cause you really hear Lauren, your voice coming through and, and the spirit with which you deliver such, um, well, important and critical, critically important information for, to, to all of us, right? Knowledge to all Thank of us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Todd. You know, I think that our delivery of this information is just as important as the content. I mean, someone said, I wrote it down. I don't know that I have it right in front of me now, but we must confront bigotry with grace or something like that. And not that everyone can, not that everyone can. But certainly in my experience as just one human being, I find that when I can meet a person where they are and acknowledge their pain and acknowledge their humanity, they're much, much more able to acknowledge my humanity and my pain. Can everyone do that? No. And I understand. I understand. But for people who who are able to do that, I find you can get through so much deeper and so much faster if I say to the person, wow, you know, I hear what you're saying, and I'm sorry you experienced that because that was painful and you didn't deserve that. Because so often what people start sharing is, well, I had it hard too when I was growing up, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know why we have to always talk about race because, hey, you know, I had this. And if I can just listen and really hear them and say, you know, you, you didn't deserve that. And I'm so glad you survived it. So let me share with you why, you know, I have a slightly different perspective on the issue we're talking about or a radically different perspective even on what, on what we're talking about and share with you a little bit about how I came to that perspective. They're really listening to me at that point, you know, and they're taking it in. And I see them start nodding their head and then we're talking, then we're talking. And that I find for me, given my temperament, my I don't know who I am as a person, my upbringing, that works best for me. But I certainly don't judge other people's styles who just need to express it in a different way because their emotions are just right here. Because it is it is a lot to ask, to experience something and then to ask the person, but you must always respond with grace and dignity. That's a lot to ask of people. Yeah. And then to dismiss to dismiss the content or the substance of, of what's there based on, on the, yeah, we're losing the message and the importance. And like you said earlier, of the pain that's behind that message. And to your point, Lauren, about, you know, to your list, I should say about what we can do, you know, and you hit on that last one, the seventh one, what, what can I, you know, draw my personal skills and interests and, you know, 
I mean, honestly, that's the spirit of, for at least in some small way of Bridget and myself of having you on the show today, right? Is to like try to use whatever platform we've created here and, and whoever gives us enough time, you know, if you've made it this far, then you were into the discussion, right? But to, to elevate and put out content and inf- ideas that support We'll use our personal skills and interests, but ideas that support all of us in uniting of like bringing us to a place where things are calmer, more peaceful, more more unified, but just kind of more beautiful, like something that each and every one of us does desire, period. So, you know, that you agreed to come on and have this discussion and and really educate and share not just your experience, but share so many valuable tips, suggestions for how to make it a reality, which is really the way forward, right? How to continue to make progress. We're eternally grateful to you for taking this time with us. Thank you so much. Yes, Lauren, thank you. Yes, I could never thank you enough for all the years, all the education. You, you know, have been so generous and so kind. And we learned so much today. I learn every single time I learn new things from you. So we're really, really looking forward to sharing this with our audience. It's very important to us. And Todd, sometimes we ask for a question. Are we, are we doing the question or we don't have to do it every time? I'm not sure. But you're reminding me now. I I totally forgot about it. I think we may not have done it in some of the interviews. So it can be a a sometimes thing (laughs) or if we can. Well, Lauren, if you had to ask a question of our next guest, right, and you don't know who that guest is going to be, what question would you like us to ask that next guest? What could about we ask? anything, about anything, anything at all, anything that comes to mind. It could be about what we talked about. It could be about something totally different. Just any question that comes to your mind that we could ask a guest. Well, I think for me, and... I am an introvert, so having the benefit of time to think about it I know. <laughs> would, have, would have been helpful, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I do have an answer, and that is I would love to know from that speaker, and really from many, many, many people, what an evolved humanity would look like and feel like to you. Mm. Put that into words. Can you envision that? Mm. If we as human beings... We're beyond all of our isms, all of our prejudices, all of our biases, all of the unconscious bias. What would we be like? Who would we be to each other? What would our planetary civilization be like? What would we be able to accomplish? How would we be living with each other? What would be the quality of human life on planet Earth? That's what I'd want to know. That is the best question ever. I'm glad we didn't tell you ahead of time because that was so perfect, even though I know it's nicer to, to give the question, give you the question about how we're going to ask you for a question ahead of time. That was perfect, Lauren. I do think it's an important question because, you know, they say we'll accomplish our goal if we keep the eye on the prize. If we don't know what the prize is, it makes it harder, I think, to fight for that prize. Yes. To keep yeah. our eyes on it if we don't know what the it is. Exactly. To be able to visualize it and feel it and see and believe that a world like that is possible in some realm, in some reality, to, to actually be able to conceptualize it. I agree with you. Yeah. Yes. And I think movies should be made about that world. We should be showing examples of that, you know, everywhere. So people begin to really conceptualize what that would be like. 
I'd like to watch that movie over some of the other ones that I've, yes. I've seen. Yes, <laughs> same year. Yeah. We get a lot of the opposite, the dystopian, we'll make sure that, apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely make sure we ask that of our next guest. I know, Bridget, you know, we're, we're running up at time here. What Final thoughts? Oh, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> this never happens. But my only final thought is thank you and your tremendous generosity of spirit and heart and mind to come and share all of your wisdom and your experience with our listeners. I thank you from the bottom of my heart, Lauren, as a friend, as a colleague. And I really look forward to spending time with you and connecting again in person. <laughs> you know, we are at this time of this recording coming up on changes where we're going back into in-person events. We've all been vaccinated, you know, and so I just thank you for your your friendship and your mentorship for all of us. And I adore you. And I, I'm very, very happy that we're going to be able to share this. And I know that it will impact people greatly. So I, I just a big thank you and a big hug virtually, <laughs> virtual hug. <laughs> for the time being until we get to have one in person. Yes, yes. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you so much. When I think about my dear, dear friends, you're on that list. I appreciate and value you so much. Oh, it is true. And you've taught me a lot as well. And I thank you for all of those lessons, Bridget. You're one of my favorite humans. (laughs) Oh, it's so mutual. Thank you. And I've been fortunate enough to now come to know you, Lauren, through Bridget and and through your work. So yes, to echo Bridget, thank you for, for spending the time, for sharing all this knowledge. And really, on a personal note, I'm so impressed by your stamina for this. And I know you would say, well, I have to have it. It's important. It's critical. We have to do it. But While that's true, not everybody has that attitude or that mindset and that ability to keep showing up to something that admittedly is is always difficult. It's an undertaking. So I'm impressed by it and I appreciate you for it and look forward to continuing this discussion into the future because hopefully as things change, as you said, the work is not done and we're going to continue, continue to raise this and we'll have you back. And and when things change, we'll can comment on them and continue to push, push it forward. So yeah, deep appreciation, gratitude for you, Lauren. Oh, thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure getting to know you through Bridget. It's been wonderful working with you. And I, and all I can say is you're quite welcome. Happy to come on and do it again whenever you'd like. Oh, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, as we always say, you know, we're trying to leave you and others better than we found them. And Lauren, thank you for helping us do just that and accomplish our goal of of that. And as always, be good people and make good choices. We will see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Right Questions podcast. We hope this episode sparked something that fuels your own inquiry and transformation. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to learn more about the work we do and how it can benefit you, check out our website, sampsoncoachingandconsulting.com. And connect with me on Instagram at the Bridget Sampson. And you can find me at Todd Parker Official. We'll catch you next week. Until then, dare to ask the right questions.